This sermon was recorded at Highway Mountain View in Mountain View, California. If you'd like to find out more about Highway Community, you can head to www.highway.org. Good morning, everybody. Great to see all of you. Thanks for spending part of your holiday weekend with us. It's great to have you here and great to worship with you. I want to start out this morning uh, with an update for you. A few weeks ago, uh, back before Thanksgiving, actually, the, the week before Thanksgiving, uh, we talked about what it means for us to, to live as a generous community. And one specific invitation that we sent out that morning uh, was to surround a particular couple in our church, Bob and Willene Logan, uh, with generous love. Uh, Bob has been in ministry for more than 40 years, was a part of the staff here at Community Bible Church long before uh, the church merged with the highway community in 2005. Uh, and his wife, Willene, as many of you know, is a gifted teacher and communicator of God's love who has faithfully served in our Highway Kids ministry uh, and blessed children and, and families in this church community and our surrounding communities beyond number. Well, earlier this year, uh, Bob was diagnosed with a slow-moving uh, but incurable blood cancer. And there was a need back at the end of November uh, as the focus shifted from treatment to comfort uh, and more care was required, there was a need for resources and meals uh, to support in-home care uh, while the family uh, was, able, was, was pursuing a more, a more long-term solution. And the response from our community over these last number of weeks uh, was nothing short of incredible. Uh, thanks to your generosity, Highway was able to provide overnight care in the Logan's home through last Sunday, uh, which was for six weeks. Uh, in addition, uh, you all also provided more than 20 meals for the Logans. Uh, people visited, people watched football with Bob, uh, and all of it was a very beautiful expression of love. So thank you uh, once again for embodying as a community what it means to be generous and compassionate. Last week, uh, Willene uh, accepted a period of respite care for Bob, which enabled him to be at Manor Care in Sunnyvale for five days while she got a chance as a care provider to rest. And then, uh, as all of that was happening, thanks to God's incredible timing, last week a room became available in a hospice care house in Modesto near one of the Logan's two sons. Uh, this is not a nursing home facility, but actually a home run by a Christian family uh, where Bob will have his own room and have 24-hour care. Uh, and their son was actually able to secure transportation so that when Bob was released from respite care in Mountain View yesterday, he was able uh, to be transported and transitioned into his new home in Modesto. And Willene is going to be living just a few minutes away uh, with their son and his wife. Now, all of this... Uh, obviously makes for a very abrupt transition out of the area for the Logans, uh, but it is nevertheless a really significant answer to prayer uh, as it was becoming more and more clear uh, that more care for Bob was needed than what could be provided at home. Now, because all of this has happened uh, in a way that at least for now uh, does not enable us as a community to say a proper goodbye and thank you to Bob and Willene, uh, we're going to be putting together an album uh, containing some notes and pictures from the community. And so out in the courtyard, after our gathering, you'll find a table right outside of these glass doors with some cards and pens on it. And, 
And we would, we would love for you to take a moment on your way out and to just write something short to express your sentiments, uh, your thanks, your appreciation, um, and your wishes and prayers for Bob and Willie. And our highway kids are going to be doing that in, our cla in their classes this morning as well. So, so please do encourage you to do take a moment this morning uh, on your way out to contribute to that. So thank you for all of that. And then one more thing. Uh, those of you that were here last week know that last Sunday, uh, we devoted both of our gatherings uh, to focusing on what it means for us to function as the body of Christ, what it means for us to function as a community in that way. And part of that uh, involved four breakout sessions where the vision of one of our ministry areas was presented, along with some different ways that the unique and valuable gifts that God has given you for, to share for the common good of the community could be utilized. And so if you, if you missed last week and you're curious and you want to catch up on what went down, uh, there is material out on the connections table in the courtyard that will help catch you up. Uh, and help you discover some different ways that you might be involved. And alternately, if you were here last week uh, and you were still ruminating on some of the things that were talked about, whether it's uh, an area where you might consider serving, uh, if you want to talk more about that or just process that journey, uh, we'll be out at the connections table and would love to chat with you more about that if there are still things that you are working through relative to that. So there, all of the updates. All of the things. There's a lot today. Thank you for bearing with me. All right. Two Sundays ago, Dean began a new teaching series in 1 John where we are looking together at the marks of an authentic Christian. 1 John is a letter that was written to a church community that was struggling. And evidence from the text suggests that the church that was receiving this letter had split uh, with some of the people from the community leaving in an uproar. However, those people who had left in an uproar still had influence, and they were trying to exert that influence in an effort to persuade people who were still in the community, still living faithfully to this community, to join the revolt. And these dissenters seem to have been a group uh, who knew the gospel of John really well and were challenging John's understanding both of Jesus' personhood and his work. And they were aggressively abandoning uh, orthodox beliefs and practices in favor of a more personal experience of faith. And, and all of that is what John is confronting in this letter as he tries to reaffirm for his community, right, in the midst of all of this conflict and, and in the midst of all of these challenges to their beliefs, the marks of an authentic follower of Jesus. The last time, uh, Dean began the series by talking about how the mark of an authentic follower of Jesus is transformation. An authentic follower of Jesus has transformed, has transformed beliefs about scripture. An authentic follower of Jesus has transformed beliefs about behavior. And an authentic follower of Jesus has transformed beliefs about relationships. And this morning, as we continue in 1 John, we're going to look more specifically at what it means for the scriptures to transform the way that we engage in our relationships. Take a look with me at 1 John chapter 2, beginning at verse 6. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. And not only do we see a very direct nod to the presence of a dissenting group there in that verse. But we also 
get a clue as to at least part of the issue that John is trying to, uh, to address. And that is that there were people in and adjacent to this community who were claiming to live in Jesus who were not actually living like Jesus. There were people who were claiming to live in Jesus who were not actually living like Jesus. Now, the word that is translated for us as to live in the first part of that sentence, whoever claims to live in him, is a word that is also found in John's gospel as well, and that's the word meno. We find the same word in John chapter 15, verse 5, when Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me, that's that word that's translated here in 1 John as live, meno, if you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Right? And so this word meno we see elsewhere in scripture and in John's writings can also be translated as remain or stay or abide or dwell. And so John is saying here that whoever claims to abide in Jesus or remain in Jesus or dwell in Jesus must then live as Jesus lived, different kind of live this time. The second live that John uses literally means to walk after or to tread after. And so dwelling in Jesus requires walking as Jesus walked, treading in the same footsteps that Jesus tread. And so John is very clearly, I think, pressing into the fact here that the way that these dissenters were living, right, the way that they were conducting themselves, the manner of their lives was incongruent with the claim that they were making that they were, in fact, followers of Jesus. And the implication is that they were not walking as Jesus walked. And in verse 7, John reveals for us what it means to do that at the most elemental level. He says, Dear friends, I am not writing to you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him, Jesus, and in you, because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Now notice there that John begins by declaring that what he is about to say is not actually something new, but something old. And that's because this commandment that he is honing in on Right, the command to love is a command that is deeply rooted in Scripture. Right, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 5, God tells his people, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. And then in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 8, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. Right, and that connection with the old is really significant for John here because this group that was causing problems in the church had effectively renounced the authority of, script, of the scriptures in favor of personal experience. Right? And so John is very intentionally trying to reroute what he is saying in the tradition of scripture. But of course, that command to love was not only old in the sense that it had its roots in the Old Testament, it was also old in the sense that it was very central to the teaching of Jesus as well. 
right, when Jesus was asked which of the commandments was the greatest, he distilled the entirety of the Old Testament law down to those two love commandments that we find in the Old Testament. Right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Jesus said, and the second one is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, there is no commandment greater than these. Right? No commandment singular greater than these plural. Right? And so that, that really interesting disagreement in the grammar there, which I guess Jesus gets to do because he's Jesus, right? That really interesting disagreement in the grammar importantly reveals that for Jesus, loving God and loving others are interdependent. Loving God and loving others are interdependent. They have a symbiotic relationship, right? As we love God, we are naturally drawn to love others. And as we love others, we are expressing in the most profound ways our love for God. We're showing our love for God as we love others. And that is precisely where John finds the inauthenticity of this group that had left the church. They were not embodying God's love in the way that they were handling this disagreement. Right, John writes again in verse 9, anyone who claims to be in the light, and again, that's an allusion to these opponents, anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because the darkness has blinded them. Now, notice the emphasis on action there in those verses. John doesn't say anyone who says that they love their brother or sister lives in the light. Right? It's anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light. Anyone who loves their brother or sister lives in the light. And anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness. Right? And this is characteristic of John's writing, incidentally. We notice that John does not spend any time trying to define what it means to hate someone. It's very simply the opposite of love. Right? John writes, and we'll see this repeatedly throughout our series, in this very black and white, clear and direct way. So hate is simply the opposite of love. He's not so much focused on the action as he is on the absence of the love that he is looking for. And so we see for John that the, that the, the authenticating evidence of living in Jesus is love for others in the community. The authenticating evidence of living in Jesus is the love for others. Uh, John says that if you don't love your brother or sister, you're in the darkness. And of course, the ultimate test of that, right, both here in the very specific context of this letter that John is writing, uh, as well as in our own modern day present context, the, the ultimate test of that love for others is seen in whether or not we can love the unlovely. Right? Love only becomes a genuine value when it's tested, right? as it is being tested here in this community and that, for, that John is writing to you. Love only becomes a genuine value. It only becomes a mark of authentic faith when it's tested. Love becomes a genuine value only when we have to reach beyond ourselves and love someone that we don't want to love. That's the caliber of love 
that John has in mind here as he's addressing this community. And John is speaking, by the way, right, not only to this dissenting group, Right? He is not only speaking to this group of people who have denied the core doctrines about Jesus and denied the value of practical behavior as a hallmark of true spirituality. He's not only addressing them, he's also addressing his own followers as well. And even though they might be in the right theologically, and even though they might be in the right ethically, they still don't have the license to hate either. And I can't help but think that John had in mind a very personal, very powerful experience of this right, as he called his community to love one another. As the 13th chapter of John's gospel begins, uh, Jesus was aware that his time and his ministry on earth was coming to an end. And so he gathered his disciples together in an upper room uh, to share one final meal with them. And during that final meal, John chapter 13, verse 1 says that as Jesus gathered them, he gathered them together and loved them to the end. During that meal, Jesus got up from the table as they were eating, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist, filled up a basin with water, and began to wash his disciples' feet, which was a task that in the ancient world was one that was reserved only for the lowest servants to do. Jesus was intentionally modeling through those actions how to love others. But he was intentionally showing his disciples that love is seen most profoundly in actively and humbly and sacrificially serving others. Right? And it's an incredible display of love. Right? We get a glimpse of that when Peter stands up and objects to Jesus watching, washing his feet because culturally speaking, it wasn't right for a rabbi and teacher to wash the feet of a student. What Jesus was doing was incredible. He was turning everything upside down. But what makes Jesus' actions even more incredible than that, what makes Jesus' actions in John 13 go to another level even entirely is the fact that while Jesus was doing that, while he was washing the defeat of all of his disciples, he was also washing the feet of his betrayer as well. After Jesus finished washing his disciples' feet and finished explaining what he had done and how his disciples were, were to love one another in the very same way, John chapter 13, verse 21 says that Jesus became very troubled in spirit. And he told his disciples that one of them was going to betray him. John chapter 13, verse 22, said his disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, which incidentally uh, is the very humble way that John, the author of the gospel, refers to himself in the text. So this is John now, one of the disciples, the one whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. So here's John, right, the same one who's writing this letter in this scene. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple. So Simon Peter motions to John and said, ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he, John, asked him, Lord, who is it? 
And Jesus answered, it is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it into the dish. Then dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And so John was a firsthand witness of the kind of love that he's calling his community to evidence here, embodied in the person of Jesus. And he was a firsthand witness of the steps of Jesus, specifically loving and living into this idea of loving an enemy. And that is the ethic that John is holding up here in 1 John chapter 2. And given that responsibility, and the question for each one of us this morning, right, as we, as we wrestle with, with what this text means for us today, right, the question for us this morning very much is, how do I love the person that I struggle to love? And as a follower of Jesus, how do I love the person that I struggle to love? How do I love my enemy? How do I love someone who has wronged me? How do I love someone who has betrayed me? Someone who has hurt me? Someone who just makes my life difficult at every turn? Or who is habitually argumentative? Or who through their behavior doesn't demonstrate respect? But tomorrow, we celebrate a federal holiday that, that honors Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And as he advanced civil rights in our country, uh, Dr. King was certainly someone who had a lot of experience modeling the very kind of love that John talks about here in the most tangible ways. And in thinking about that, uh, and thinking about this text this week, I came across a sermon that Dr. King delivered at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama in 1957, uh, entitled, Loving Your Enemies. Uh, and I would encourage you uh, to consider reading this sermon this week in its entirety. Uh, there's a link on the screen behind me, a simple link, a bit.ly link where you can find it, bit.ly backslash loving enemies. There's also a little piece of paper out on the connections table. If you forget that or can't snap a picture of it, if you're interested, you can grab one of those to remind yourself as well. But I'd encourage you to consider reading it because I think it's very poignant uh, given the very polarized climate that exists in our country today, both politically and otherwise. But one of the things that Dr. King says in that sermon right, that we must do in seeking to love our enemies one of the things that's foundational to us living into this kind of love that Jesus demonstrated and commanded is to discover the element of good in our enemy. It's to discover the element of good in our enemy. And I love how Dr. King puts this. He says this, somehow the isness of our present nature is out of harmony with the eternal oughtness that forever confronts us. And this simply means this that within the best of us, there is some evil, and within the worst of us, there is some good. When we come to see this, we take a different attitude toward individuals. The person who hates you most has some good in him. Even the nation that hates you most 
has some good in it. Even the race that hates you most has some good in it. And when you come to the point that you look in the face of every man and see deep down within him what religion calls the image of God, you begin to love in spite of. No matter what he does, you see God's image there. There is an element of goodness that can never slough off. Discover the element of good in your enemy. And as you seek to hate him, find the center of goodness and place your attention there, and you will take a new attitude. Amen, right? You know, as I consider those words, I can't help but think about the story of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. Now, Zacchaeus' story has always been one of my favorites, and it's a super familiar story. Right? Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector who was short in stature, and he wanted to see Jesus. And so when he saw that Jesus was coming, he went out ahead of Jesus in the crowd and climbed up into a sycamore fig tree so that he could see over the crowd and catch a glimpse of Jesus. And when Jesus came by, he saw Zacchaeus in the tree and he called him down. He said, Zacchaeus, come down from there. I must dine at your house today. And Zacchaeus came down and he welcomed Jesus. And as all of this was happening, Luke says that the crowd muttered because Jesus was going to go and be the guest of a sinner. And Zacchaeus, in response to that muttering, stood up and said, look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Now, I had always understood that text to mean that Zacchaeus had made that commitment to be charitable as a result of Jesus calling him down and going and being a guest at his house. And I had always understood Zacchaeus' pledge as a commitment to changing from this, these previous ways of greed that he had as a tax collector <laughs> as a result of his encounter with Jesus. I'd always read it that way until a phrase that I heard in a scripture reflection podcast that I was listening to a little over a year ago got me digging into this story a little deeper. Right? As a chief tax collector, Zacchaeus was among the marginalized in the ancient world. Right? Tax collectors were not well regarded. Right? They, were, they were effectively Jews who had corroborated with the Roman government to collect taxes in excess of what the Roman government even wanted. That was the practice a lot of times. And they, had, they were cheating their own people. And so Zacchaeus was someone who was marginalized in his community. And we see this in the story in two different ways. Number one, by the fact that he's literally perched up in a tree on the outside of this crowd that is down below around Jesus, right? So he's physically marginalized in the story. But we also see that he's marginalized as well because of the fact that these folks mutter that Jesus is going to go to his house, right? Zacchaeus, because of his profession, was labeled and categorized as a money-grubbing, Roman corroborator <laughs> who was taking advantage of his own people. Right? But here's where the story gets a little bit more interesting. 
when the people muttered that Jesus was going to go and be the guest in the home of the sinner, Zacchaeus stands up effectively as a response to that. He stands up to defend himself. He says, look, Lord, as if maybe you know, Jesus might not come over now. <laughs> look, Lord, here and now I give half my possessions to the poor. And if anybody has cheated me, I'll give them back four times the amount. The tense of that verb that is used in Zacchaeus' statement, in his proclamation, the proclamation that he makes to Jesus, that here and now I give half my possessions to the poor, you know what the tense of that is? Present active tense. Not the future tense. Not here and now, Lord, as a result of you coming here, I'm going to go do this. It's actually I'm already giving to the poor. Despite the fact that nothing of my exterior, nothing that anyone would see of me when they look at me on the outside would ever betray that. Right? This is something that Zacchaeus was already doing. He was already giving half of everything that he had to the poor. And I like to think that Jesus, when he saw him in the tree and called him down, had already seen that. That everyone else only looked at the exterior, but Jesus saw something different. Jesus saw something else. He saw what Dr. King talks about here, I think, the good in Zacchaeus' soul. Something that was in there that without focusing on that and changing our attitudes and setting our hearts on love wouldn't have been seen otherwise. And it's such a beautiful illustration, I think, of what Dr. King is talking about. Discover the element of good in your enemy. And as you seek to hate him, find the center of goodness and place your attention there, and you will take a new attitude. Holy Spirit, would you give us eyes to see the good in those who we struggle to love? Would you help us to focus on that good? And through that, Lord, would you change our attitudes in a way that enables us to love others as Jesus did? That enables us to love others in a way that shines the light of Jesus into the darkness. Amen. As Nick leads us now uh, in a time of singing, uh, we're going to celebrate communion together, uh, which is a reminder for us of Jesus' ultimate demonstration of sacrificial love, his demonstration of sacrificial love for us, for humanity, for the sins of humankind, and which was a love that uh, we did nothing to deserve, but that Jesus showed us graciously regardless. And so as we sing, you're invited to make your way down to this table that is in front of me from either of the sides of the room. Get the elements that are on it, the bread which represents Jesus' body, the wine or the ju and the juice which represent Jesus' blood, and return to your seat through the center aisle. And when you return to the seat, uh, you are welcome to partake of those elements individually uh, whenever your heart is ready this morning. As we come to the table, and may we do this in remembrance of him. Amen.